This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, Weekend Warriors of Michigan Politics and Government. The usual array of significant issues were in play at the state capitol and around the state this week. But I would say the most potentially important is one that is taking a long time to play out. And that is the Line 5 pipeline under the Straits of Mackinac. Wednesday was the date by which time the state told the Enbridge Corporation in Canada to stop operating Line 5 after Governor Gretchen Whitmer gave notice that she was going to revoke the 1953 easement on which the pipeline sits. The company said it would not comply, and it did not, and the two sides are duking it out in court. Whitmer's administration accused Enbridge of trespassing if it continues to operate Line 5 beyond the Wednesday deadline, which it did. And she has threatened to seek any profits that Enbridge derives from continued use of the line, citing unjust enrichment. Enbridge countered by announcing that other entities had joined it in opposing Whitmer, including the Canadian government, the Attorney General of Ohio and Louisiana, and North America's trade build, excuse me, building trades unions, and the United Steelworkers of America. Enbridge also said it would, quote, reassess the situation, unquote, regarding its plans to build an underground tunnel to house a replacement Line 5 pipeline if Whitmer succeeds in getting the current lines to shut down. Does Enbridge believe it would be freed from past agreements it made with the state of Michigan to build the tunnel if it were forced to close the current lines? Yes, said Enbridge. And it was joined in its argument by Chambers of Commerce officials representing Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, and the Chambers for the United States and Canada. Valerie Brader, a former state official under Governor Rick Snyder and an attorney now with Rivenoak Law Group, said two agreements the state has with Enbridge that obligate the company to build the tunnel have termination clauses. Brader said those clauses indicate that if there are terms in the agreement, if Enbridge has to involuntarily cease operation of the existing Line 5 dual pipelines at the direction of a governmental entity at any point during the design or construction of the tunnel, they do not have to build the tunnel. Brader said termination of the tunnel project would be a resoundingly negative outcome, quote-unquote. So, folks, as of today, the oil is still flowing through Line 5, and there is a long and expensive struggle ahead of us as to resolve this issue. Now, 
Here are a few questions I've been asked during the past two weeks, and here are my answers. First question. Detroit Police Chief James Craig has announced he's retiring June 1st. He says he will make a decision whether he won't run for public office after that time. If so, will it be for the Republican nomination for governor in 2022? Republican leaders are giddy in their belief. They finally have a top-tier candidate who can sweep Gretchen Whitmer out of office. One public relations maven says a Craig candidacy would be a, quote, game-changer, unquote. Is it? Well, my answer is not yet. There's a long way to go. Although candidates with law enforcement credentials have certain built-in advantages, there is much more to being a candidate for political office, particularly for a major one like governor, than simply being able to show that you once wore the badge, even if you did a good job of it. In fact, the Republicans and even some ostensibly nonpartisan candidates have a less than exemplary track record over the past seven decades when running for high office in Michigan. Let's look at the list of who fell short not so long ago and even back into the 1950s. Oakland County Sheriff Mike Bouchard won a competitive GOP primary in 2006, but then got waxed by incumbent Democratic U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow in the general election. Before that, it was Gil Beverly Hills Cop Hill, who was a commander in the Detroit Police Department and later president of the Detroit City Council. He had a lot of key endorsements. But he lost to then-State Representative Kwame Kilpatrick in the nonpartisan race for Detroit mayor in 2001. That's 20 years ago. Earlier, the Republicans in 1986 nominated Bill Lucas, who was the Wayne County executive after serving as Wayne County sheriff. Lucas was decimated by sitting Governor James Blanchard in the general election even though Lucas then went on later to be elected a judge. In 1973, Detroit Police Chief John Nichols finished first in the nonpartisan primary for Detroit mayor, but then lost the finale to State Senator Coleman Young. Nichols recovered by moving to Oakland County, was elected sheriff as a Republican. Way back in 1954, in the last race that might be truly analogous to the current situation, if Craig should become the Republicans' gubernatorial nominee next year, a former Detroit and state police commissioner, and that's what Chief was called in those days, his name was Don Leonard. Donald Leonard was the Republicans' nominee for governor against incumbent G. and Soapy Williams, who was then seeking his fourth consecutive two-year term. Soapy clobbered Leonard in a year when the Democrats swept every major statewide office. So I would say right now Craig has to prove he is a bona fide political commodity. He has to show he can raise campaign cash, and he probably won't get a free ride to the Republican nomination. He'll likely have to beat one or more opponents, whether they are considered top-notch or not. 
there are a whole bunch of social cultural issues that will be in play that he'll have to deal with adroitly. It will help that he won't have the baggage that other candidates have accumulated from years in office, but that doesn't mean he won't be judged by his ability to address the issues in a coherent way. Now, second question. Will Donald Trump play a role in Michigan's 2022 gubernatorial race? And if so, what will that role likely be? My answer is almost certainly he will. But will it be more significant in the Republican primary or in the general election? You might imagine James Craig would be the perfect kind of candidate for Trump to get behind. The former president weighed in on the special election in Texas's 6th Congressional District two weeks ago. And the primary candidate he endorsed, Susan Wright, finished first in a 23-candidate field, although she faces a runoff. It was a so-called jungle primary in which candidates from all parties run at the same time, 23 of them, and Democrats were completely locked out of the finale. The Republican aggregate vote overpowered the Democrats 62 to 37 percent in a district that Trump carried by only 3 percent last year. Trump can be expected to endorse both in Michigan's Republican gubernatorial primary and in the general, where he would most likely sweep into the state and deliver a stem winder against his old bent noir, the woman from Michigan. I'll be back in a moment with our first guest. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned as promised, and we are very fortunate to have on the line with us Dr. Jane Orient, and she is executive director of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, and she is also president of Doctors for Disaster Preparedness. Welcome to the Political Insider, Dr. Jane Orient. Good. Well, good morning. Good morning. Um, I want to talk about what are called vaccine passports. And I will just mention that the Republican majorities in the state House and Senate in Michigan took some action this week to try and prevent the creation of vaccine passports in Michigan. They haven't completed it yet. They have to pass the bills. They got them out of committee um, and see whether Governor Gretchen Whitmer accepts them or not. And I would like to ask you, uh, is this a good idea uh, to stop vaccine passports? And what are vaccine passports? I think it's a fantastic idea to stop them. There is a frenzy about these vaccines and imposing them on everybody. I think it has nothing to do with immunity because a lot of people are immune already, either because they've had the disease and they knew it or they had the disease and they didn't know it. And giving them a vaccine would be absolutely harmful and has no benefit to them. But if we have a vaccine passport, it's a way of segregating society between those who complied with the push to get this injection. I won't even call it a vaccine, really. And those who 
exercise their freedom to decide what goes into their body. Well, two states, apparently, Hawaii and New York, have already passed uh, legislation or have in place actually requirements for a vaccine passport. And Democrats here in Michigan, nevertheless, contend that there are no plans to do this in Michigan. And the governor, Gretchen Whitmer, a Democrat, has said she has no plans to implement one. But if, if that's the case and the Democrats feel there's no need for one. Why are we worrying about this? Why wouldn't they just accept the idea that, okay, uh, we're not going to have one. We'll make it official. We'll make it a law. You can't have one. That's absolutely logical. (laughs) Well, uh, when you say you won't even necessarily call it a vaccine, you call it an injection. I mean, why do you make that distinction? They had to change the the definition of vaccine. This is not like injecting a weakened virus that you become immune to. It's injecting foreign genetic material that turns your body into a vaccine factory because this foreign genetic material causes you to make the spike protein, which is probably the part of the virus that does damage, whether it's attached to the virus or not. And then your body makes antibodies to the spike protein. So in that respect, so it's, it, it's different from a flu vaccine, for instance? Absolutely. Yeah. The flu vaccine has a weakened kind of virus in it. And your body learns to recognize the components of that virus that attach to your cells and help it get into the cells. But this, this is, is genetic material. This is genetic engineering. It is not of the weakened antigen like all other vaccines have been. Would it be possible or would it have been possible for pharmaceutical companies to have developed a vaccine that was a true vaccine, as you say, like a flu vaccine? Or is was this a quicker and easier way to combat COVID-19? I guess I'll say it's quicker and easier. They've been working on this gene technology for 20 years. And conveniently, this virus came along. But the Chinese apparently have four vaccines, and three of them are traditional types of vaccines. So developing the vaccine is not impossible since they apparently have done it. You think a true vaccine, like a flu vaccine, or as the Chinese largely are doing it, would be a better, safer way to combat COVID-19 if we had it available than what they're doing right now with these injections? Well, I think, and not necessarily, because as we discovered with the vaccines that we're working on for SARS-CoV-1, which is a cousin of SARS-CoV-2, it had the nasty uh, feature of inducing antibody-dependent enhancement for the disease. So in the animal tests, the animals made antibodies like champions, but when you expose them to the virus, they all died. And so this particular vaccine was never released for humans. And we seem to have forgotten that. You know, most vaccines don't do that. But certain viruses have this characteristic. The the coronavirus, the respiratory syncytial virus, dengue, had past history of doing this also. So the idea of just kind of short-circuiting the animal trials for this uh, SARS-CoV-2 was a very bad idea. Dr. Jane Orient, uh, I am older than you. But um, I remember back in 1957, you may have been a little girl at the time, uh, too young to remember this. Um, 
but there was a massive flu epidemic in this country. It wasn't COVID-19. It was, you know, a, a flu epidemic somewhat like the one 100 years ago at the end of World War One. And remember, the population of the United States was half what it is today. And really, the incidence of cases and deaths was alarmingly high. And in, in fact, it wasn't that much below what the toll has been now from COVID-19, given the fact that we have a population twice as big. And then there was another flu epidemic in 1968. It spilled over into 69, 70, 71. I well remember that. I was college age at the time. And I'm a little bit amazed, frankly, over the last 15 months at the response from various levels of government in this country at all levels and the public health community to the onset of COVID-19 and the way the public has reacted to it, the way the government, I should say, has reacted to it and the public health community, it seems to me a difference in kind rather than degree between what has happened in the last 15 months on the one hand and what the response was from government back in 1957 and 68 into the early 70s. How do you account for this? Do you agree with me? Do you see the comparison or contrast I'm trying to make? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you're not that much older than I am, but I was in school at the time, and I was completely unaware of this. Life went on as usual. You know, in 1968, there was the Woodstock thing where all of these people came together. There were no precautions whatsoever then. And we just just went on like like usual. And this time, maybe at first, we thought this was something even worse than than before. And so maybe at first the the reaction might have been reasonable, but it was very should have been very quickly apparent that this is not the black plague that is going to kill everybody if we don't uh, if we don't all go into house arrest. So, yeah, it's a difference in, in kind as well as in degree. Yeah, so, I mean, maybe ultimately there was an overreaction by government and the public health lobby on this, right? Oh, absolutely. And, and the, the measures that they took had no cost-benefit analysis. They have done far more harm than any p- potential good. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look. Thank you so much, Dr. Jane Orient. You've given us a great perspective. I learned things just in these 10 minutes talking to you. Thanks so much, Dr. Jane Orient, Executive Director of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, for being our guest. Thank you. We'll be back in a minute with more. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back, and we have a guest who has appeared on this program before a couple of times. She is a student at Princeton University. Her name is Manar Talib. Manar Talib, thanks again for returning to be our guest. Thank you for having me, Bill. (laughs) Okay, let me mention that uh, Manar uh, is a graduate of Dearborn Fordson High School, so she's a tractor, the most uh, unique mascot I think there probably is, a tractor. 
Um, but she is by no means a tractor, personally. She is uh, the opposite of a tractor. <laughs> Uh, but in any event, Manar, like many college-bound students, um, had a pretty rocky road last year, her freshman year at Princeton University. Uh, everything was uh, moving along pretty smoothly until March, and then COVID-19 hit, and they sent her home. And in the summer, she went over to Europe uh, for uh, a, a month or so and studied in Northern Ireland, and then she came back to the university uh, in the fall, and she's been trucking along here as a sophomore, and uh, I just want to get a report, Manar Talib. Uh, how has it gone as a sophomore at an Ivy League college this fall with COVID-19 as a factor on campus? Uh, what's your personal experience, and what do you think the student body is doing to deal with it? Oh, it's been so strange. This entire year has been online. I only got an in-person campus experience as a freshman first semester, and now I'm a junior. Like, that's insane to think about. And, you know, doing university during COVID has been stressful because you're not connected to people as you used to be and also to, like, the resources of the university. So people have been coping it how they could and been asking universities to be a little bit more kind with grading and all more, like, mindful of mental health. But, you know, I'm at the end of my sophomore year now, so hopefully falls in person. Yeah, as I understand it, your sophomore year actually now is completed, and you've taken your exam or exams or whatever, and you are actually now home, and your sophomore year is over, and you look forward, if that's the word for it, to your <laughs> junior year beginning in the fall. Half your college undergraduate experience is over. Um, so, you know, why are you home now? Is the entire campus deserted now, or are some students still there? There are some students still there. The university gave us like three weeks of a move out period to space out people leaving campus. So it's not really crowded. So I left on like the 29th of April before I even had my exam just to get just to get out of the university, get out of Dodge. But um, yeah, there are people still there now. I think until the 16th, they're allowed to be on campus. Wow. I mean, do you uh, have a feeling that the student population, how do they react to what's gone on this year compared with your own personal feelings about it? I mean, is there anger on the campus about, you know, their experience this year? Are they mad at the administration or the university, the way they've handled it? Or do they think everything's been done sensibly? No, there's definitely a lot of anger and um, I, so directed towards the administration. There have been tons of petitions from students because we didn't have a spring break. We, we barely had any time for ourselves this semester, and it's, it's a condensed semester on top of that. So it's been extremely hard on students to be doing all of this with no time to, like, catch our breath. But all the administration has done has just, you know, politely encouraged teachers to have less work. But that's not a binding agreement. Yeah. What about uh, coming up the next few months this summer? I mean, what do you plan to do at this point? Is any of it university related or not? Um, no, because the university will announce late now that they're allowing travel, um, you know, for internships and university-related studies and things like that. But I, because of COVID and the nature of the work I want to do, which is a lot of stuff outside, not social distance, I haven't really had a lot of opportunities because of COVID. So my summer is going to look different than it might have if there was no pandemic. <laughs> 
Yeah. Let me ask you, when you went to Princeton as a freshman, I mean, I think if, if my memory hasn't deserted me, you were interested in environmentalism to a great extent. I mean, is that still the case for you? Oh, yeah. You know, environmentalism, ecology, like that realm is, is where I'm at. <laughs> the, the what now? What did you say it is? Ecology. Oh, ecology. Ecology. So are, what, are you, mm-hmm. what are you majoring in? Ecology and evolutionary biology. That's the name of the major. Okay. All right. So you haven't deviated from your original intention. No, and that's pretty rare. I've had a lot of friends who had a lot of drama around um, Declaration Day about what they're going to choose, but I I had known since the beginning, and I hadn't really strayed from the path at all. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, that's interesting. Do you think a lot of the uh, disruption and confusion other students had about their majors and maybe changing majors, was that due to the COVID-19 disruption, or do you think they would have had that anyway? I think they would have had it in part, but it's definitely hard with COVID-19 that you can't really get to get a feel for professors in real life and kind of majors and the kind of people who are in your major. So I imagine some people would have had an easier time deciding if they were actually able to like meet people and make those connections to like have a more informed decision. Yeah, I read recently there is something called an HMEI Environmental Scholars stipend of like $16,000 that I think four sophomores got. Do you know anything about that? Was that anything you would have been interested in? Um, I actually, this is the first time I'm hearing about it. I'm familiar with the HMEI Institute, though. Yeah, apparently it was something, I don't know whether you had to apply for it or they just swooped in and awarded it to you. Well, let me ask you this. Let's say you get through this summer and you start out in the fall. What is your expectation or hope or what's your prediction about how life is going to be at Princeton beginning in the fall? Is it going to be back to normal the way it was when you arrived in September of 2019 as a freshman? Or, you know, is it going to still be disrupted? So the university is actually requiring that everyone get vaccinated for this. And they predict that if nothing major happens, everyone will be like on campus and classes will be in person again. So I imagine fall will be as close to normal as we can get. Maybe there will still be social distancing or math, but I imagine we'll be able to see people again and like be in classrooms. Well, that's my biggest hope anyway. <laughs> yeah. Is there something like a vaccine passport that's going to be required by the University of All Students? I mean, they have to show they're vaccinated like I think you just got a shot yourself, right? Yeah, we're going to have to register with the university. And uh, towards the end of the semester, the university actually got vaccinations. So they've been holding clinics in like the gyms for the last couple of weeks for people to get, you know, the Johnson Johnson vaccine. Yeah. Did you get a, a two shot vaccine or a Johnson and Johnson? No, I got the two shot. I got Moderna. <laughs> you got Moderna. OK. Well, how do you feel about vaccine passports and how do other students feel about it? Could you um, clarify what you mean well, by a passport, passport Yeah, a passport simply means that the university is going to require that a student, you know, gives evidence that they have had a vaccine in order to be allowed on campus, to be allowed in buildings, to be able to have in-person learning. I think it's a positive thing because we want to keep our community safe and we also want things to go back to normal, right? We don't want to have any COVID outbreaks on campus and we want everyone to be safe and secure that they're kind of going through this campus and not being exposed to it since everyone's vaccinated. So I think everyone getting vaccinated will allow us to go back to normal finally. Yeah. When you were on campus, were you in a single room or did you have a roommate? 
I had a roommate. I was in um, a quad, but it was a double now because we both had our own room and a common room. It was pretty nice because we had all of that space to ourselves. Yeah, what about the dining experience? Uh, were you all able to even dine together, or how did you? How did that work? The um, the eating, like the dining halls, were open for in person eating, but it was social distance, so it had limited capacity. Um, towards the end of the semester, a lot of people ate outside anyway because the weather was so nice. But yeah, most of the complaints were about the food and less about the like eating basements or availabilities. Yeah, so you are still in your ecology major and looking forward to next year. So how many courses are you going to be taking, let's say, in the fall? And you think those are all going to be pretty much in-person courses you'll be able to attend on campus in the fall at Princeton University. Listen, Manar Talib, I want to thank you very much for being our guest again. You've given us a great bird's-eye view or whatever you want to call it of life on campus at an Ivy League college in the throes of COVID-19. Thank you, Manar Talib. Thank you for having me. We will be back in a minute with more. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we have on the line with us Representative Rodney Wakeman. He's a Republican of Saginaw, or at least with a Saginaw address. He represents the 94th House District, and that is a horseshoe-shaped district, I would describe it, in suburban, rural Saginaw County, kind of curling around the city of Saginaw and includes the city of Frankenmuth and I believe 10 townships. Is that correct? Representative Rodney Wakeman. How you doing, Bill? Thank you. Uh, yeah, that's pretty accurate what you have there. It's uh, different jurisdictions uh, in and around um, uh, Saginaw County. Um, uh, I'm one of three state representatives that ultimately represent the whole, all of Saginaw County. So, uh, yeah, my, my portion of the 94th, uh, is, um, U-shaped. Yes. But, right. uh, it's, yeah. It, and I'm in Saginaw Township is, is my residence. Right. And you are chairman of the Families, Children, and Seniors Committee in the State House of Representatives. I think you're also vice chair of financial services. You sit on two other committees. And um, I want to ask you, you uh, nearly three weeks ago wrote this letter to Elizabeth Hertel, who is the director of the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. And here is the beginning of your letter. I'm going to quote you. You say, I respectfully asked you to reconsider the revised order your department recently issued requiring children as young as two years old to wear face masks while in child care or at camp in Michigan. Since you issued the revised order on April 16th, my office, that's Rodney Wakeman's office, has been flooded with phone calls and emails from moms, dads, and other constituents have very legitimate concerns about the new requirements that begin on April 26th, that's nearly three weeks ago, for children ages two to four, unquote. And I could read more, but let me just ask you, have you gotten any response to that letter? And or has the department done anything to revise its policy on this issue? Uh, the answer is no on both. Um, I was hoping that the director or a representative from her office 
would be uh, willing to share comments of any kind with me in my office, uh, my staff, whether by phone or email. Uh, my staff has been uh, waiting on the wings, waiting on the wings to uh, to hear from uh, the director or staff, and nothing nothing has come about with that. Um, obviously, I think the you know, letter has serves a purpose in terms of communicating the wishes of several people that have reached out to my office uh, on this ma new masking issue. And, and, and the thing that is scratched, I, it's a head scratcher for me, and that is we've gone, we are now well within 13 months of this, uh, uh, these orders in the pandemic uh, uh, emergencies. And I find it just absolutely odd that it's taken this long for the, the administration and those who work under her uh, to put out a mask mandate for the practically youngest people in our society. Uh, the biggest concern that my office has been hearing from uh, parents and those uh, just disgruntled uh, over this policy uh, is the fact that the reasonableness of this, for one, my two-year-old can't even wear a hat or you know would like to keep a coat on or anything along that line. And there is just a legitimate, absolute legitimate reason that they're uh, unable to keep the mask on. Uh, and, and many of these children are, are like that. It's not, you know, I'm not about not being safe, okay? This is, the reality is, is, is you know, I, I too want everybody to be safe. But there's, there's a level of, uh, there's, a, there's a level of this discernment that I don't think has been met yet with this. And um, I think uh, the the letter going to the director uh, herself uh, just is, is pinpointing the concern, certainly in my district, and I've heard from other uh, of my colleagues in the House that that this has just been uh, an unworkable uh, new rule. And and the other part of this, the, the second part of this, I, sh I should say, is it isn't just on the parents or the child especially in these child care centers. What I, I threw out the, um, the reasonable uh, question of what would it look like if a person from the state, uh, a state inspector, walks into one of these child care centers, and then two seconds before the person walks in, this two-year-old throws his or her mask off, and, you know, the staff is going to have to run around, chase the child back down, and, you know, shove the mask back on. And then now this inspector is looking at it and says, well, you did not have the, the face mask on this child. You know, <laughs> I have heard no I have heard no parameters as to what sort of ramifications, what penalties that these businesses would be seeing in the event of what I just described or in the event of another parent, you know, seeing a similar thing and then making it into um, a, a, a big problem for the for the care center. So I, I just I'm just overly concerned um, that they are being uh, a bit restrictive. OK, and I'm being very polite when I'm saying that. OK, <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, it really comes down. It really comes down to reasonableness. Yeah. Well, look, uh, evidently your letter, unfortunately, went into a black hole somewhere in the department and or the Gretchen Whitmer administration. Uh, really astounding to me that you would not at least get a response. You're chairman of the key committee, standing committee in the House uh, dealing with issues like this. Uh, amazing. But 
Let's turn to, uh, we don't have that much time, House Bill 4644 is on a different subject, and tell me what that is. Sure. It is a uh, House Bill 4644, which I'm proud to be able to sponsor and find its way through uh, through the processes. It's a, a bill that would allow for an income tax exemption for expecting parents. Um, those of us who have children uh, now or, or have gone through the process of being able to count our child or our children on our taxes every year uh, to, to receive a benefit of that, um, parents have to wait until the child is born in order for that uh, benefit to occur on their taxes or to be allowed to occur on their taxes. Well, my bill, all it simply does is moves the calendar a little bit forward. Um, and with, with a, a doctor's confirmation that the patient, that the, the expecting mother has seen a physician at least at the 12-week point, because that's where my bill kind of kicks in, the 12-week point of gestation and beyond would qualify that family, that parent, that mother, that, that father, uh, to include that child, uh, unborn child, on their taxes as if the child had, had been born, too. So what the, the genesis behind this, it's, it's very simple. I like, like the other topic that we discussed, I, I want to have people safe. But I also want to, in this case, want to have parents... Uh, be able to receive uh, prenatal care as soon as possible. We had a couple of doctors in committee who testified who work with expecting mothers uh, very often, and they are very strong support in support of, of this bill because it thoroughly encourages mothers, expectant mothers, to get in early. And you, to me, with me, I, I can't see a, a an expectant mother to be too early to go see their doctor, uh, particularly about the pregnancy. So, you know, there it isn't a windfall. You know, this it would be just another uh, a benefit that they would receive uh, for the child uh, on their taxes, um, the same number that they would have for their uh, other born child children. It'd just be, a, a, you know, in a case of uh, one already a born child, this would be uh, the second one uh, to be able to be added to the taxes. So, so this would allow some, especially parents who, who need some monetary help, to be able to get a little bit of money and to know that this money would be coming to them um, so that they can maybe get a little bit of a jump start on their prenatal care. Um, what has been the response from your colleagues to this bill? Uh, well, uh, I, I haven't spread it around the entire caucus, uh, but in the committee, my committee members and um, my caucus members of the committee, uh, they're fully on board with it. Uh, they, they from both parties, the, from both parties, Democrats and Republicans. Well, my caucus members, particularly, I haven't officially heard yet from the, the Democrat uh, caucus members in in committee as to their position uh, yet on the bill, but. Uh, they seem to be supportive of it uh, going into committee. And, you know, it's, it's, it's to help parents, it's to help mothers, and right. it's to ultimately help the child. Right. Listen, um, I'd love to talk more about this, whether there are other states that have this or not. Uh, but we're running out of time. But we've been very fortunate to have Representative Rodney Wakeman, Republican of Saginaw, representing a 94th district. As our guest, he's done a great job explaining both House Bill 4644 and his request of Elizabeth Hertel uh, to lift 
the mask mandate for two-year-olds. Thank you, Representative Wakeman. It was my honor, Bill. Thank you. We'll be back next week with still more.